church is meant to be more than just hanging out for a little bit on Sunday mornings. It's actually meant to be like an all of life kind of a thing. And so here at Riverbend, we have what we call Riverbend communities. We just launched one a couple of months ago. We're launching a brand new community this month as well. So if you want to get connected in community and belong here at Riverbend, you can come chat with us after the gathering. We'd love to set that up for you. Um, One of the things that um, kind of uh, defines us as well is that we are a community who practices the way of Jesus together. And on a week like this where we had just another tragic um, act of violence in Uvalde, our hearts just go out to them and we just like cry out against that kind of violence. And this moment is for us to like come back to center and to remember that there is still hope in the name of Jesus. And we believe that at the end of all days, Jesus is returning and he is going to restore peace on earth. That is what we are singing about. That is what we are crying for. And so this is a moment as we as a church come together to center ourselves on the will of God and anchor ourselves in that hope and in that promise. Um, So with that, we are going to have like a teaching from the scriptures. And um, as you guys know, if you've been coming here, we are always like going through the scriptures together. And this week we have a really special treat for you. One of my good friends and uh, a pastor in Portland um, named West. Weston Brock is going to be teaching for us. And um, listen, uh, we are, again, like I said, just all about the way of Jesus and learning the scriptures together. Uh, But so much more important than just like having a good message is actually living your message. And um, that's why everyone who teaches here at Riverbend, whether it's me or Brooke or one of the other pastors or a guest, we always want to um, say like, hey, listen, the message is great, but does your life match the message? And in Weston's case, it's like totally the case. He is a genuine man of God. I'm so proud to call him a friend, and I'm proud that he's here. So we'll put your hands together for Weston Brock. Thanks, dude. Appreciate you. Thanks, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I love getting to come and be with you guys. My name is Weston, as Andrew said. I remember um, I've known Andrew for a while when uh, Westside, the church that I work at, uh, planted Riverbend. Was it like five years ago? Was that like five years ago? Um, Andrew came on as an embedded church planner at Westside two years prior to that, and he and I officed out of the same uh, room and became quick, fast friends. And so we've just, I've loved being able to come out and continue to uh, just support however I can. But also, it's just so incredible for me to come and be a part of this community. You guys are amazing. You're, there's just such a sweet um, uh, hunger, I feel, for God and for his word and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in Bend. I love it. So it's been really fun to come out and just such a breath of fresh air for me. I came, I, I am first and foremost a, a son of the living God. Um, I secondly am a husband to an amazing woman, Jenny, she's here with me this morning, and um, I have four kids who we gave this gathering off, they are with friends right now, so they didn't have to sit through twice, it's okay. Um, but then at Westside, I, I play a role, I oversee Hear the Cry, which is our local and global uh, justice, compassion, kind of story of Jesus mission work that we do. Um, and. As uh, recently, I took on the communities as well. So as of Tuesday, um, that was a new job for me. So I'm now kind of in communities and hear the cry. And I think that's important because as we open up these scriptures, that's really just my heartbeat. 
My heartbeat is going to be about how do we love our neighbors really well? How do we step into the brokenness in the community around us really well? How are we, with the spirit inside of us, the answer to the brokenness that we see in the world around us? And um, I just, I approach global work very differently, too, as far as what we do overseas should be a reflection of what we're doing at home. Um, instead of mission trips, why don't we call them serve and formation trips? It's a place for us to go and pour our lives out and to be formed into the image of, of God as we go. Um, and then also, is it a reflection of how how we interact with our neighbor. And I don't mean like, I don't mean a neighbor. I mean like your right and your left, the people that live right next to you, neighbor. How do we love them well? Are we, are we being a hands and feet of Jesus to them? And so that's where my heart is at. And so as we open up the passage this morning, that's just going to come out. Um, so if you turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter three, um, continuing on in the series in Galatians that you guys have been in. One of the fun things about teaching, stepping into a series, is that I, I didn't have time to listen to everything leading up to this point, so I may be repeating things. And if I'm repeating things, just nod and smile and go along with me, and that's okay, okay? But first, let me pray. Jesus, we come before you. God, we invite you into this space. Your name is worthy. Your name is to receive all glory and honor. God, we lift your name up above all else, and we ask that you this morning, God, would move in our hearts, that your spirit would affect us today, that we would walk away uh, knowing a little bit more about who you are um, after spending this time with you. So we just pray this in your name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 19. We're just looking at six verses today, but before I begin to read, I actually want to give a little bit of context as to what is going on. So this letter... Galatians, written to the church in Galatia, was written by Paul, um, but it was written from a place of deep passion and frustration. You see, the people of Israel were to be a nation set apart from other nations as they would practice um, the commands that are written in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Practices such as circumcision, such as observing the Sabbath, such as um, eating kosher, and many, many more. And in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you will come across something called the Mosaic Covenant, which was a covenant that God made to Moses starting at Mount Sinai and then moving forward. And this covenant for Israel was to help them be a people set apart. You would know that they, were that, they were, that they were set apart by God because they would follow certain laws. But they began to stack up to the point that there was about 615-ish laws to follow by Israel. Very, very difficult. Now, the people of Israel had been following these laws to the best of their ability and working as hard as they could to stay right in this. And they've been doing this for about 1,500 years before Paul wrote this letter to the church in Galatia. But as Paul wrote the letter, the Messiah had come. And so that was the idea with the Mosaic Covenant. It would be there until the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would then fulfill, as Jesus said, fulfill the law and the prophets. That was the idea. And so the Messiah had come, the saving faith in Jesus was there, his spirit was now available to anyone. In fact, there were many followers of Jesus during the time that Paul wrote this that were not from Israel, that were non-Jewish, as the word that were Jewish. But the, the problem, though, was that many of the Jewish Christians believed that these non-Jewish followers of Jesus needed to begin following these same laws of the Mosaic Covenant. And so they showed up to the church in Galatia and began to force these non-Jews to obey their laws. And so when Paul found out about this, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result of that. So today's passage picks up right smack dab in the middle of Paul's thought. 
And I love the first question that he gives. We're going to walk through this verse by verse. Paul actually is trying to make a point through this whole thing that God's purpose was always, and I just love the way the Bible Project puts this, was always to have one large multi-ethnic family who relates to him on the basis of faith and not on the laws of Torah. That was Paul's point. And what he's saying is, hey, the Mosaic covenant has been good, but there's a much larger covenant. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Started from God's promise to Abraham to make him a nation full of people to follow Jesus. That's still in effect. The Mosaic covenant is fulfilled once the Messiah comes. And so Paul's trying to remind them of this. And so this morning, we're going to walk through the passage line by line, starting in verse 19. And I'm going to give the first question here that Paul asks. He says in verse 19, Why then was the law given at all? This question, coming from the mouth of Paul, is mind-blowing. We all know the story of Saul on the road to Damascus, right? Getting blinded. Um, He's seeing Jesus face-to-face. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul worked his whole life to follow the laws of the Torah. Saul's Saul's role was to keep Israel in line. He just went too far in his process for doing that. He, He decided that in order to keep Israel in line, he had to defend it with violence. Saul was a Pharisee. He tried to do the best that he could to serve God. I'm definitely not saying it was good that what he was doing was horrible. But, but he was serving until he met Jesus, and he realized, as, as sincere as he had been, he was sincerely wrong. And so I just wonder, as he heard from this church in Galatia what was going on, I just wonder if it was triggering for him at all to say, hey, you don't have to follow all the laws of the Torah anymore. There's something else going on here. The Messiah has come. And so this first question that he asks blows my mind. It just shows the transforming work of Jesus in Saul's life. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, why was the law given? It was added because of our sin, the sinful nature of humanity, until the Messiah would come and bring fulfillment to it. Continuing in verse 19, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. This is Paul pointing at Mount Sinai and Moses. And a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Well, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So remember who he's talking to, right? The Jewish Christians who believe that non-Jewish Christians need to follow the laws to be part of God's family. And so Paul's saying that if the Torah itself could save you, then you should follow it but it can't save you on its own. Verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Okay. Paul's point here, and in many of his other letters, is that the law was always intended to be a temporary measure. Always. However, the law, the Torah had both a negative and a positive effect on Israel. And so in verse 22, he's pointing out the negative role of the law. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin, constantly exposing their rebellion to God's law. For example... Do you remember back in 2020 when we had this thing called the coronavirus that kind of like blew up in our faces, right? You guys remember that? 
One of the laws that we had to follow here in Oregon, called a mandate, was that we had to wear masks. Remember? That was fun. And um, we wore these masks when you had to walk into buildings. And sometimes it was even like outdoors and all the things. I don't know how it was here in Bend, but man, it was just like, you know. And you had to walk in. Now, the point of the mask in in quarantine, we were told, was to flatten the curve in two weeks. You remember that two weeks that became like two years? It felt interesting. Now, my heart was a little rebellious at times. I'm not pointing for either way, whether right or wrong, my heart was a little bit rebellious and that sometimes, not all the time, I would walk into a store just to see how long it would take to be asked to wear a mask. Now, I'm not saying follow me because that was, anyway, but that was, but because of the mandate, (laughs) because of the mandate, it pointed a spotlight on my rebellious heart. If the mandate wasn't there, Then it's just whatever you want to do is fine. Mask, no mask, whatever. But because the mandate was there, it pointed a spotlight on my own heart. Now, I'm not vying for either way. Masks, no masks, whatever. I'm just telling you from my experience. Using an analogy that will always break down. Now, if I didn't wear a mask and walked in, it was like a spotlight. So it happened that the mask mandate and quarantine, which was we were told was intended to protect and bring life, ended up becoming kind of a spotlight on rebellion to the CDC. Now, this is where the analogy breaks down, because I'm not comparing the CDC and the law of Scripture, okay? Not even a little bit. I'm just using an analogy of the law attending to point a spotlight. The mandate pointed a spotlight on me. Now, all analogies will break down. I'm just simply trying to use this point that the negative effect of the Torah is that it constantly told Israel how they were failing. And in turn, those laws which were intended to bring life became a prison. And so Paul's point in verse 22 is, the law that was given by God is good, but it ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, which is just another way to say before the Messiah came, We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And that's just Messiah fulfilling the law. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And so this is now the positive role of the law, acting as a guide on Israel's behalf. Imagine if you would going to a bowling alley. And if you're not a very good bowler, you put up the bumpers on the side. And no matter what way or what direction you roll the bowling ball, it will eventually get down to the end. That was the positive intended role of the law, to act as a guide. This is the direction you go, and so you keep on this path all the way down until the end. That was the positive aspect of the role. And the law, the Mosaic Covenant, was intended to keep Israel in line until the Messiah would come. And finally, when we get to verse 25, Paul's clarifying and narrowing down his point. He kind of starts out real broad, and then he finally gets it down to, in this passage, verse 25 is the point. He says this, now that this faith has come, talking about the Messiah, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that the mask mandate has lifted, you don't have to wear a mask in Costco anymore. If you'd still like to, that's fine, but it's no longer a strict guideline. And now, I'm going to give you my incredibly oversimplified, over, oversimplified paraphrase of what's going on. Ready? 
I think I even have slides for it. It's that simple. Ready? So you have a group of Christians, group A, who are following a list of rules that are good, rules and laws that were given to them to keep them on the right track, right? But then these Christians, group A, meet other Christians, group B, who don't follow the same rules. But, but yet they're still claiming to follow Jesus, claiming that the Messiah has come. They're just not following the same rules as group A. So this other group of Christians, group B, they seem to be saying all the right things. It's just that they're not practicing the laws of group A. So group A begins to force their rules onto group B, saying that in order for them to really be in the family of God, in order for them to really be accepted, they have to do the things that we do. And Paul's answer is another, in my simple paraphrase, is nope. It probably. I don't know. I mean, it's not exactly in the scripture, but he's like, no to that, right? He's like, no. That's what the entire letter of Galatians is about. It's like, no, no. In all of this, Paul is saying that the Torah is good, but Messiah fulfilled the law. And when he fulfilled it, them, all the laws, he made a way for all of us to come to know him, not just those who follow the laws of the Torah. Let's be clear, though. Paul's not saying just have faith in Jesus and, and you don't have to worry about the Bible. He's not saying that, and that's definitely not what I'm saying. He's saying specifically that the 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant of the Torah, we're not bound to those anymore. You're not bound to those anymore. They're not bad laws. You may still find that they're helpful for you. But if you're saying that you have to follow the Torah to be accepted in the kingdom of God, you're completely removing any work of the power of the Holy Spirit from the picture. The conflict that we see Paul addressing between group A and group B is alive and well today. You don't have to look very far. Maybe the majority of the conflict isn't specifically on obeying the laws of the Torah or not, although that is still a thing. The subject matter of the conflict may change, but the group A and group B thing is very alive. So let's make this fun. This is part of the fun about being a guest teacher is I get to say stuff and then Andrew gets to clean it up next week, okay? So here's the go. Let's say group A, Christians group A, are voting one way. Then they meet Christians, group B, who are voting another way. How can that be? Can group, wait, you're not voting the way that I vote. You're, you don't actually think the same way that I think. Group A then begins to force their way of thinking onto group B, saying that maybe not with words, but with actions, that in order for you to have fellowship with us, in order for you to have community with us, in order for you to be considered a part of the, of the body here, you have to do things that we think is right, and vice versa. And Paul says, nope, probably. So here's another one. So you have a group of Christians, group A, we could do this all day, who are following the CDC guidelines with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then you have another group of Christians, group B, who do not follow the CDC guidelines with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And both are saying to the other that in order for us to have fellowship and communion with you, in order for us to be on the same page, you or you have to agree with each other. And Paul is saying, nope. I mean, again, we could use the same example and say things like vaccination, say things like pro-choice, say things like Black Lives Matter, 
say things like, look, it goes on and on. But the reality is that group A Christians and group B Christians is alive and well today. And Paul's message to the Galatian church is important for us today as it ever has been. And so what's the call? What's the call? Why is this so important for Paul? Why does Paul hear this and decide to actually write a letter, send it with a courier to the church in Galatia for them to read? Why can't he just say, well, as long as either party has both faith in Jesus, it doesn't, like, they're fine. They'll figure it out. Why does he actually put pen to paper, write it, send it to say, hey, actually, this isn't okay? Why is he doing that? What's the call? The call is unity. Paul's entire purpose for saying don't force people to obey the Torah is to say we need to have some unity amongst the believers. Hear me, unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. Okay? There's a way to step into unity with your brothers and sisters and not necessarily agree with everything they say. Unity, not uniformity. How many times in the scripture are we compared to the family of God? To brothers and sisters. And how many in your family all agree and think the exact same thing? I remember growing up in my family, my mom's side of the family, well, both really, but my mom's side of the family, it was... My parents were first-generation Christians, my grandparents, and, and they homeschooled us, and so my grandparents thought not only are they brainwashing them, but they're ruining them socially, right? And all of the things, and then we had just a whole slew of differing opinions, and there's not one conversation that we could camp on that we all agreed on, so we played cards. I'm not, I'm not advocating for avoidance, I'm just saying that was like my family um, growing up. It was always, just play cards, that's a good idea, great. And so we'd play cards, and we could have that in common. Families don't always agree on the same thing, do they? We're called to be a family. We're not called to be echo chambers. And it seems to me that the areas of tension in our culture today are everywhere. And that's why right now, more than ever, we have got to work. Dare I say, fight for unity. Okay, but families are messy. Families don't always agree. Siblings fight. What happens then? What happens in our, in, our, in our attempt to follow the Apostle Paul's understanding of unity? What happens when, when, we, when we are doing that and then we come across something that's just like we don't clearly agree and we're both pretty locked in on it? What happens then? What happens then? When I was talking to Andrew about this message a couple weeks ago, I remembered this tool that... Um, Gary Bershears gave us. He's a professor at Western Seminary. Andrew and I both had him at separate times as our professor. And he had this incredible useful tool that he used uh, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to tension, when it comes to issues, to actually know how to process it. And so I just want to give it to you real quickly this morning. Again, this is not scripture. It's just a tool. Gary would actually argue that you can break down any issue into one of four levels. Level one being discuss for. These are the kind of issues addressed in Romans 14, 15. They're the, they're the areas of belief, the areas of opinion that we have where Scripture is not clear on. They're just discussion moments, things that you can talk about, things that you can look at from different point of view, perspective. Nothing should be heated in those moments. It's just discussion. You're just having a chat, right? These are the sort of issues that Paul instructs us to stop judging one another over. 
And to be clear, though, this sort of like accepting sort of attitude, it applies in the non-essentials, the non-essentials. And we'll make that more clear in a second. That's level one, discuss four. Level two is debate four. These issues are a bit more meaningful. From my perspective as a pastor at a church, we wrestle with these issues, and there's some of the maybe the lesser um, difficult differences in, in denominations, right? It could be in like uh, leadership roles in the church, like how different, um, having different ideas there, maybe a, a worship style, music style, or teaching style. These are just things that we can sit here and have opposing points of view, but not necessarily have arguments and hurt feelings over. Um, I know that there's, a, there's quite a few pastors at Westside who actually don't land on some of the same things as we walk through things together. That also was pointed out really loud and clearly in the last several years as we've walked through some tough stuff. But, but yet, the point is there's areas that it's okay to have differing opinions on. It, it's, it's okay. These, these issues can be prolonged. They can even be painful. But what's important at this level is to keep the things at this level. So often I found that when issues at this level are silenced or left unchecked, avoidance, let's just play cards instead of talking, when it's left unchecked, when it's avoided, that these issues, which should actually just stay put at this level, actually move to level three, which is divide four. So, Everyone who agrees on the essentials, right, affirms the essentials, like who believes in the Lord, anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead will be saved, right? This is unity, understanding of like these, some of these basic things. However, there are other really important issues that are so foundational to, the life, to our life with God that we will divide fellowship over them. Um, and, and, and in the church, again, oftentimes these things are some of the more pointed, some of the more uh, specific areas of denominational lines, whether good or bad. Now, honestly, though, I'd say that there are times when such divisions are legitimate, just as long as the overall unity of the body is affirmed. However, I also would argue that the majority of divisions in the church, in the community, in the family, may be because level two was left unchecked. Maybe because you didn't have an open conversation of, oh, yeah, you think this way, I think this way. Interesting. I'm respecting your point of view. I'm understanding it. But is this something worth dividing over? Probably not. But when left unchecked. And then finally, level four is die for. These are issues like the foundations of the faith, the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, God in three persons, the incarnation of Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, justification and regeneration by grace alone, through faith alone, which has lived out the gospel, the Spirit's personal indwelling, final judgment, life after death. Some of these truths are worth dying for. Discuss for, debate for, divide for, die for. It's a tool one that I have found really helpful. But what happens is oftentimes I've found that, and I do this myself, that we push our issues up a level. What should just be discussing turns into debating. What should just be debating turns into a divide. And maybe what we just need to divide in unity over 
we act like it's a hill to die on. Uh, I was asking my wife before I came, I was like, Jenny, I need a story of maybe a time in my life when I was like super stubborn and, and took, made an issue bigger than what it was. And with a smile, she said, oh, it's just been so long. <laughs> Not true. So in our home, actually, we have, um, maybe, you've, maybe you understand this. I have, we have four kids, right? Oldest is 14, going to be 15 next week. Shoot driving. Oh my goodness. We got to pray. So he's 14 and our youngest is eight. We have four kids, my wife and I, so six of us living in a home and we have two Alexas, right? So two, two speakers in different parts of the home that when you speak to them, they will play the song that you want. And when you speak to this one, it will play a song you want and this one you play. Now my oldest, well really all of my children have very eclectic tastes in music. My oldest specifically, he's got this certain sphere of musical wonder that ranges anywhere from Bobby Darren and the Four Seasons to ACDC. And I don't know how it gets there, and I don't know if I'm even okay with all of it, but his, his taste and his playlists are there. And what I do know, though, is that everything outside of his playlists is trash. And my daughters love Taylor Swift, which is trash to him. So Jenny and I thought we were going to be really on top of it. We, you know, we had one, and then we got another one, and we just said, hey, no arguing over what song is being played. And we just figured that was it. And it wasn't. Um, and so pretty soon they begin to argue over what song is playing specifically, not just what song is on mine, but what song you're playing on yours and if it's loud enough that I can hear it. And so they learned that you can talk to this one and control this one. And so all of a sudden it's this massive argument over the song. And I, I, I kid you not, an argument that I have had to step in the middle of more times than not is what song is going to wake us up in the morning. And I'm like, what happened just to the, uh, 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 like, what happened to that alarm? But now what song? What song do we want? What's, and then they argue over which one. He, anyway, it's little issues that should just be a quick discussion that turn into these die for moments of my identity is in question if you don't listen to Here Comes the Sun. You know, it's like, what are we doing? So Paul's call for unity amongst the believers, it's the same today. When we find ourselves elevating our systems for living over our relationships with people, there's a problem. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything that the other person is saying, but that person is an image bearer of God who deserves the respect that we can give, regardless of whether or not we agree with them or not. But when our system for living becomes larger and more important than just the ability to say Jesus loves you, there's a problem. And for Paul, requiring these non-Jewish Christians to observe the law, it just doesn't make sense to him. And for us, not accepting other Christians, not accepting the group A or group B Christians because they think differently from us, it just doesn't make sense. Because it's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins. It's neglecting the freedom that we have through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. And it limits God's promise of one multi-ethnic family. For us today, as in Paul's day, the call is unity. But then I have to ask, why? Why is unity important? 
why is, is understanding how to, how to live, how to agree, how to work with, how to, how to walk shoulder to shoulder with each other who don't agree or don't believe the same thing. We, why is that important? And Jesus said it in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's not be the group A Christians who are not accepting the group B Christians. I think we can put that away. I think we need to be done with that. I actually think we need to figure out how actually can we move in unity together. I just love so much that Andrew mentioned and, and we're praying for the, some of the brokenness that we see in the world or around us. It's all over. It's evil at work. It's, it's the work of the enemy all around in our nation. And how do we have an answer? How do we step into that? It's definitely not arguing over silly things. It's definitely not turning debate for items into divide for items. It's definitely not fracturing, fracturing ourselves from other Christians and spending our time battling that out. It's actually walking shoulder to shoulder with each other, being the hands and feet of Jesus, being the light that the Spirit of God is inside of us to actually expand his kingdom, stepping into the darkness and the brokenness. That's how we're the answer. And we're not an answer if we're arguing. But that's what the enemy would want to do to completely distract us. Now, I'm going to be clear. There are some issues worth dividing over. There are some issues that are worth debating over. There are, are some issues worth dying for. But the last thing I want to do is project. I, did, I purposely didn't give an example because I don't want to project onto you an issue or in a level because I think you know what those are for you. I think that you know. And so what I want to do this morning is end with just a little bit of listening. You see, we, we get this idea of, I mean, our culture gets this idea of shoulder to shoulder working together. Our culture gets it. You look, you look at any weird food plan, Whole30, keto. But if you do it with a group, it's easier to do. Right? Or like, or like CrossFit. If you do it with a group, it's easier to do. And I also think there's some sort of like document somewhere that if you're doing any of those things, you have to like tell people right away. Is that a thing? Where it's like, basically like, it's safe to say, I mean, Andrew and I were talking the other day for like 10 minutes. Neither of us brought up CrossFit. So it's safe to say neither of us do CrossFit, right? So I think that there's like this certain thing that you, anyway. So, but we understand culture. I don't mean to be throwing CrossFit people under the bus. Y'all are like way stronger than I am. If I was a super big tire, I'd be freaked out. Um, never mind. So... <laughs> Or a box, so you don't jump on me. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm done. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Our culture understands the power of community. And I think that each person individually as followers of Jesus would say, yes, community is important. Now, I don't know what the percentages are here at Riverbend, but I know at Westside, the percentages of people that come on a Sunday versus those that are in intentional community every week is too far off to be okay. To actually step in and say, no, I'm going to be a part of an intentional community of believers around me that we love our neighborhood really well and the people around us really well. And we look, actively look for ways to step into brokenness, to being the hands and feet of Jesus, to bring unity, not uniformity, to bring a family, not an echo chamber, to say, God, what are you calling me to do and how can we be a part of, of, of expanding your kingdom into this world? That's what community does. I'll tell you what's never an example in Scripture is being the lone wolf for God. That's not in the Bible. 
but being a family is. And so I want to end just with a little bit of listening, listening to the Spirit speak to us. There's a few, there's things that, again, I don't want to project anything on you, but I think if you take a moment, I think the Spirit wants to reveal some things. I know He is in my heart. And so uh, one of the things that we do at Westside a lot is we just give space for the Spirit to listen and we kind of posture our hands out like this. You don't have to do it, but if you feel comfortable doing it, it's just a way of of physically expressing maybe a heart and and mind attitude of receiving. And I'm just going to pray, invite the Spirit, ask this question, and then give space to listen. There's three questions here. So I want to invite the Spirit. Spirit, we ask you to come. Speak to us this morning, God. The first question that I want to ask that I want you to ask Jesus right now is, God, is there an issue in my life that I am pushing up a level that I'm making a bigger deal of than I should, that I'm digging my heels on, that I'm dividing over when it could just be a conversation? And I want you to listen. And if you bring something to your mind, I want you to write it down with your journal or your phone, just write it, write it down. God, speak. The second question is similar, just maybe another way of looking at it. God, is there an issue in my life that I can push down a level? That I've I've convinced myself it's a divide for or it's a debate for, and I just need to actively push it down. answer to both those questions is the same. That's okay. But the final question is, God, is there anyone that I need to seek unity with? Maybe somebody that you've hurt or offended because you've made a topic more important than it should be. God, is there anyone that I need to seek unity with? Write the answers down. If there's a name that came to your mind, write it down. And then I'd ask that you'd be so bold as maybe this week, reach out to that person, whether text, phone call, coffee. I know it's hard. I know maybe you're thinking, yeah, but they hurt me too. Like, okay. Like maybe they're 90% wrong. Okay. Own your 10%. We say in our family all the time, own your junk. Just own it. We got a sense this morning in pre-gathered prayer that there was some people this morning that were maybe bound up by something. 
Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's whatever. And that God would want to set you free this morning. So often when we hold forgiveness from somebody, when we hold it back from somebody, it's like, you've heard the saying probably before, it's like drinking a cup of poison hoping that they get sick. God, there's so much freedom waiting on the other side of forgiveness. There's so much life waiting on the other side of forgiveness. Man, if he's brought somebody to your mind, go make it right. So as we move into the time of response this morning, as the tables are open, the prayer wall is also open in the back. Listen, if God's brought anything to your heart and your mind that you just want to ask prayer for, like, go on back, ask for prayer. Maybe a name of somebody. You don't have to be specific. You can just say, this is hard, and we'll pray with you over that. We'd love to pray with you over that. The tables are going to be open here. Grab the bread and the cup. Head back to your, to your chair, and Brooke will be up here in a minute to lead us through it. But let's not let today go by. Let's not let this week go by without actually doing business with what the Spirit has laid in our hearts today. Tables are open.